and welcome to the launch episode of Cypher Vision, a podcast series dedicated to unleashing the strategic value of patents. I'm your host, Francesca Lavoie, and thank you for tuning in to our very first episode, The Road to Evidence-Based Decisions. We're going to explore how this theme led to the creation of Cypher. And today we're joined by the co-founders of Cypher, Nigel Schweitzer, our CEO, and Steve Harris, our CTO, to understand why their unique blend of intellectual property and machine learning was the key to unlocking actionable intelligence for the patent world. They both bring a wealth of experience and are both recognized by the IAM Strategy 300 list as industry leaders in the field of intellectual property strategy. So welcome, Nigel, and welcome, Steve. I hope you've had your coffee this morning. Welcome to Cypher Vision. Why don't you tell our listeners about your life before you started Cypher? Steve, what were you doing before Cypher? So my background's in computer science. I was a computer science researcher at a research university in the UK for 10 years. And then I went off to start a startup in another industry, consumer anti-fraud, using some of the same technologies that I used in my research days. So I did lots of things, including artificial intelligence and machine learning, but also various kinds of advanced database techniques and all kinds of stuff. But really, my focus is more on what we can achieve with technology rather than the technology itself. I'm not really driven by the technology for its own sake. It's about what problems we can solve with it and how we can make things better generally. Nigel, so what was your life like before you started Cypher? Life before Cypher for me has always been intellectual property. I've done intellectual property all my professional life. I was a partner in a major law firm advising major companies on the creation and exploitation of intellectual property rights. And as uh, I'm of a certain age, I can't possibly disclose how old I am, but as I'm of a certain age, I've been doing this since the 80s at a time where intellectual property was only central in, say, pharmaceutical and the emerging uh, telecoms and communication sector. It's kind of strange 30 years later to be talking about those sectors being emerging. But there it was. I grew up as intangibles became more important uh, to the economy. And uh, that led us to, uh, well, led me uh, at that time to uh, frustration that there wasn't more evidence for the critical commercial strategic decisions that needed to be made. So we're here to to talk about evidence-based decisions. So, Nigel, what exactly was the problem that you were encountering? As intellectual property started to account for ever more value, Leave aside these numbers like 85%. There certainly was a tipping point in the 90s where intangible assets were more important than fixed assets. But that kind of education uh, hadn't been completed. So those people working in the economy, in finance, in deals, uh, kind of missed that level of understanding. But you then had to try and explain the deal teams who were doing mergers and acquisitions, joint ventures, IPOs, uh, and also the licensing and litigation that was growing up inside companies. There just wasn't the data to make the same level of analysis as there was, say, in finance, where they had report and accounts and balance sheets. So the frustration I had was I was being asked the questions that I wanted to be asked but I didn't have the data at my fingertips to support and justify. So the absence of evidence-based decisions, the absence of evidence to make decisions kind of created a huge gap where there was interest, there was demand for a better understanding, but there was no way to communicate in the same way as other asset classes. 
And Steve, your background wasn't intellectual property. So how did you see the problem? Yeah, so I had almost no knowledge about patents at all. But when I came into it as an outsider, I did quite a lot of research into what was going on in industry generally. You could see there was a huge trend in the importance of IP and tangible assets, but really specifically patents. And if you look at the, the sort of operation of a business, patent strategy feels like a real outlier in terms of the budgets are really huge. And the people that are making the decisions, generally speaking, have very little access to the data that you would typically have if you were making decisions with that kind of budget. So they were kind of being forced to, to fall back on like either poor quality data or none at all. And the existing software in the patent world was designed to address different problems. There's kind of lots of operational issues around running a patent portfolio. You need to be able to do FTO searching or prior art searching, and you need to be able to maintain and renew your portfolio and all these kinds of things. But there was no software solutions for people making the, the big strategic decisions at the portfolio level. So when we're, we're talking about making decisions and using evidence or data to, to do that, Surely there's there's plenty of data around. Patent data has been around for 20 years. So when we're talking about a lack of data, what do you actually mean by that? Well, obviously, a lack of data, is, I guess that's the a funny way of putting it, because it's not like there's a shortage of it. There's, there's millions and millions of patents out there. The challenge was it's not really organized in a way that makes it easy to, to answer these questions. So if you're trying to figure out some strategic aspects of your patent portfolio, the information you really need is who owns all the assets in my technology spaces and what are my technology spaces, you know, efficiently mapping patents back to the products that your company produces is kind of the, the critical thing that you need in order to figure out whether you're in a strong or weak position from a patent perspective. And Nigel, you talked about being very frustrated, but there is a lot of patent data out there. So where were your frustrations coming from, from a data standpoint? Yeah, I think it's like a hierarchy of needs. At the bottom of the stack is data. In the middle of the stack is analysis. And at the top of the stack is insight. But as Steve said, I remember when we first met back in 2013, and I said, Steve, let me go and start talking to you about patent data. And I remember him joking, saying, well, I think I know more about patent data than, than you do, because I downloaded the US patent office's records for the last 100 years onto my laptop overnight. And so it wasn't that you couldn't swim in a, a lake of data. It's just having data you know, those documents are 60 pages long. Uh, by the time Steve had uh, accumulated the world's patent data, that's 100 million 60-page documents from 100 patent offices over 100 years or so in 26 languages. So having data, as Steve said, isn't, isn't the answer. It's the problem. If you're going to make a decision, then you need to have insight. You need actionable insight, that touchstone of all business intelligence companies. So the frustration was, I had no problem in the last 20 years getting hold of the data. I had absolutely no way of making sense of it at any reasonable cost. My career was spent asking humans to go into rooms to read PDF documents to figure out what a pattern was about. So if you can imagine, even if you have a transaction with a thousand patents and it only takes 15 minutes for a professional to skim through that document, and you're only charging out in those days $250 or pounds an hour, you can see that there's a, a mountain of cost. There's a, 
a barrier of inefficiency that is stopping insight, even in the face of mountains of data. So, Steve, given mountains of data and you're trying to get to actionable insight, what solution did you see? Well, so that comes back to sort of it's really it's about understanding what people are trying to achieve and sort of repurposing the data to, to structure it in the way that that people need to consume it. So the the pattern data system wasn't built for doing what we do with it. It's it's written from the point of view of you find a pattern that you're interested in, you read it, and you send write a letter to the person that's described as the inventor on the on the front page. And that's not really very helpful if you're trying to come up with a, a clear view of what IBM, for example, own in their pattern portfolio. Because the first challenge is figuring out what does IBM own. I remember a very early conversation with Nigel where he told me point blank that there was no way that there was uh, an IBM pattern which wouldn't have International Business Machines Corporation and an Armonk address on the front. But of course, that turned out not to be true, like just because of the... Um, the, the, the huge number of patent attorneys that are writing these things in all the different ways you might write down the IBM's corporate name and all their offices all around the world and all the rest of it. So even just that was an enormous problem. And that's something that's common in lots of data sets that I've worked with over time. They're generally, as soon as you get to sort of millions or tens of millions of documents, there's very little consistency with how, how the data is structured. And piecing that together is a challenge on its own. But also from the point of view of, you know, not only are we reversing the way that patent data was intended to be used in terms of ownership, but also in terms of technology. If you're doing a conventional patent search and you find a dozen patents that you're interested in, you can read them and find out what they're about. But if you come at it from the other direction of, I've got a product that I'm interested in, and that product consists of 20 technologies, there's no efficient way to go and find all the patents that relate to that. It's You can write 20 billion queries and then do an awful lot of manual research on the results in order to whittle it down to the stuff that's genuinely relevant. But it's really hard to be sure you've found everything. And it's just inefficient. Like like Nigel said, the cost of that is not really viable for many people. So what was the solution, Steve? So the solution was... Uh, as it turned out, the solution was machine learning, although we didn't come into it with that preconception. I do have a background in that technology space because it's really good for solving hard problems that haven't previously been cracked. But when we met, we didn't even discuss it. It was just like, here's a, here's a, a problem this industry faces and can we come up with a technological solution? Um, but it turned out that that job of figuring out which patents relate to a technology is best solved by machine learning. Uh, when I first looked at patent data, I thought, oh, it's going to be really easy. There's these CPC codes. There's like hundreds of thousands of them, and they describe technology in minute details. But it turns out that they're so inconsistently applied because, they're, they're, again, they were put in there for a different purpose. They're for identifying prior art. So they're not actually a very good way of describing what technology the patent covers. But uh, it, the, the, at first glance, the data looks very neatly organized. And then you've got all the text to work with as well. You know, the cl- structure of the claims and all that kind of stuff gives you a lot of clues about what the patent's really about. But there's no, there's no straightforward algorithmic solution to that. Really, machine learning is the only way to go about it. By training machine learning algorithms on examples of what you're looking for, you can deliver really very, very accurate results. And more importantly, it gives you a really good way to 
describe exactly the technology that the the user's interested in if they're looking for particular aspect of led light bulbs it's much easier to define that in terms of examples than it is to define it in terms of text and cpc codes and and things that you might write into a boolean query so talking about machine learning nigel when i think about machine learning i guess you hear about it in being able to detect cancer cells or whether you know there's traffic on your route to school or or not and which way to go do you think you'd be using machine learning to to come to evidence-based decisions when you first started cypher i mean even hearing you ask that question francesca makes me smile i'm not sure uh in 2013 you and i would have talked about book recommendations or alzheimer's or cancer detection as being machine learning problems they were just solutions being delivered to us. I think if you'd have said machine learning to me or artificial intelligence, I'd have gone to Wikipedia and read the Turing test about whether we're heading for singularity and and start rewatching series of matrix. So uh, I, I definitely, look, I'm a lawyer. I was a lawyer. So uh, we lawyers do not spend our time thinking about data science. And that turned out to be one of the problems. You know, as I started on the Cypher journey and Steve educated me on the right technologies uh, to apply to the problem. Of course, I, I can now go and uh, wax lyrical or at least for a good 15 seconds on the difference between unsupervised and supervised machine learning. But that is not the background to the intellectual property profession. Uh, we, you know, we're very familiar, were very familiar with manual reading and curation. So no, um, it was the early investors in Cypher uh, that made it a condition precedent that I uh, found somebody and formed a partnership uh, with somebody that had a very significant capability in data science. Even then, not as machine learning, because you don't start with the technology, you start with the problem. And you know, uh, credit to Steve, um, he's uh, incredibly practical. So when we looked at the problems, we only looked at the problems and the outcomes, and then it was for Steve to go away and, and find the right technology to crack it. Uh, you know, some of our early solutions were done with brute force, building enormous databases in the cloud. And, and actually, that's another point just to tip our hat to. Solutions like Cypher, which can analyze the world's patterns in an hour or whatever it is, you can do that because you've got algorithms, but you can also do that because you have access to virtually unlimited computing power, thanks to the likes of AWS and other cloud services. Thinking about the patent data that you encountered, Steve, were there any surprises when you started digging into it? Um, yeah, I mean, for sure. But the, um, I mean, just to be clear, patent data is pretty terrible. The quality is very, very low. Um, and there were there were a few things in there which were really worse than I expected them to be. But it's not it's by no means the messiest data set I've ever had to work with. Um, but there are a few things which are just weirdly wrong, like the, the fact that there's no standardized way to refer to patent publications. You know, they have they have these identifiers with the kind of, they look at first glance really normalized. You've got a country code and then some digits and maybe a letter or two and then a kind code on the end. But there's no standardization and every system uses a slightly different format, which is just incredibly stupid. But <laughs> that aside, um, it's really not that bad. As I say, 
there was a few things I was hoping might be better than they were, like the, the CPC codes I thought might turn out to be more useful than they actually are. And there's there's some issues around the text, you know, patents are written in this very weird legal jargon, which makes figuring out exactly what they're about harder than it needs to be. And I know it's deliberate in a lot of cases, you know, the patent attorney's been being paid to write the patent to cover the technology as broadly as possible. So they're not trying to make it easy to figure out, oh, this is a LIDAR for an autonomous car. That's kind of, they're deliberately leaving that that open. Um, so that, that imposes a challenge that you wouldn't normally have when you're trying to classify documents. Um, and I guess that the, maybe the biggest surprise was that we had to come up with a lot of um, a lot of new techniques for processing patent data which aren't commonly applied in machine learning. You know, there's standard techniques for classifying documents and, and and dealing with taxonomies and all these kinds of things, but none of them work on patent data. It required us to, to invent quite a lot of stuff to, to make that accurate enough to satisfy the users. Nigel, we seem to talk a lot about some really messy data in patents. Was this your experience? And did you give Steve a, a heads up about this? Uh, no, it's quite interesting to hear Steve to say whether he was surprised and he takes it all in his stride. I was absolutely horrified by what we had uncovered. I mean, the fact that ownership uh, was a complete mystery to to the pattern world until Cypher uh, found some solutions to it. The fact that there aren't any standardized formats. The fact that 20% of records at national patent offices are wrong because people choose not to record that they're the owner. It's not like stocks and shares or houses where there are very sophisticated mandatory global standards about change of ownership mandated by law. You know, around the world today, it's somewhat optional about whether you record the fact that you are the owner if you bought that patent or a set of patents from another company. So uh, definitely uh, wasn't prepared uh, for that. Uh, but I do believe that Cypher's made a very significant contribution to that. And I think there's a lot of people now working on it, both at the national and international patent office level uh, and also other you know, commercial solutions just to make it easier and easier for people to work with this data set. So there are now wholesale providers that aggregate global patent data. There's obviously improved algorithms that can do machine translations. But the list of problems to be solved was, was definitely longer than I expected. But I think that was naivety. I think Steve uh, uh, used to laugh at my simplistic approach going, oh, just sort out that pile of patents, Steve. Great. So I'd like to return to, to evidence-based decisions. In my experience, in other industries, you always need to give robust evidence around any decision that you want to take or even any proposal for next year's plans. So thinking back to intellectual property and patents, Nigel, who are the people that we're trying to help? It's a good question because what we thought and what we've ultimately done have been uh, two slightly different things. So you take this kind of starting premise that intangibles, intellectual property and patents are all hugely important. And you accept as a given, as you say, that in other business areas, if you want to make a decision, you better provide the evidence in support. So let's start categorizing those people. There might be companies who own large patent portfolios. There's a, a million of those. They clearly need to make decisions about 
what size and shape their portfolio is, how it's helping to mitigate risk, how they might execute cross-licensing deals, a myriad of questions that they might want to ask. What about uh, lawyers and accountants? They would seem like they would need to know. I was a lawyer. I was desperate for this status. So you had that second community of people who were advising uh, the companies. What about managing this risk and using the insurance market? So we have a close relationship with London underwriters now, but we imagine that would be a massive market. But again, that market has been slightly slower to develop than some other markets. But as you can see, there's this broad array. It could go as far as investors. Wouldn't investors like to know something about this asset class that's making up such a a large part of value? But I think, as Steve probably alluded to before, uh, when you come up with something new, you have to take the market along along with you. And when we had that conversation about machine learning, Francesca, we realized that machine learning has now become part of our lives, but it hasn't been that way for a very long time. So we started out uh, knowing, I guess, or at least passionately believing that uh, having strategic pattern intelligence would help people make decisions across a very broad range of uh, sectors. But but we had to uh, start somewhere and we ended up focusing very specifically on companies. Steve, given your experience, how did you find the reception of what you'd been able to build within the intellectual property community? Yeah, was, as Nigel said, like definitely the warmest reception was in the the companies that were trying to, to manage the portfolios for themselves. And that's uh, hugely helpful from a product perspective because it allows us to focus in on the things that that particular group of users needs rather than trying to be all things to all people, which is impossible. Um, but the, the other areas, I mean, there was interest, but clearly not enough to sustain a, a business that was that was growing at the speed we were. For, for lawyers, it was really a problem with the business model. If you're um, if your revenue source is billable hours, then it's quite difficult to comprehend of how a time-saving piece of software is going to going to make your business better. And that might be changing. I think there's there's new business models emerging in the the law market, but um, it's uh, at the time it wasn't it wasn't really an easy thing. Financial services we thought might be interested, but uh, certainly at that time there wasn't a huge amount of interest in intellectual property as a value driver for for investments so uh, so that wasn't really compelling enough and we do have a relationship with the insurance market but you know ip insurance is still quite a sort of emerging area at the moment and um, the accountants really had no interest whatsoever so it was for us it was about um, experimenting with these different markets to see where the most immediate demand was with the benefit of hindsight it seems really obvious that it should be the the companies but uh but it wasn't at the time you know if you're if you're deploying 10 100 million dollars a year maintaining your pound portfolio you really want to be sure that you're spending it in the right way so thinking about companies or or corporates what do you think the impact of improving access to, to better patent intelligence has been, Steve? Well, it completely changes the changes the approach. It goes from a sort of um, strategy driven by sort of gut feel to one that where you can actually show the value. You know, you you can calculate the return on investment of your patent portfolio. You can figure out how much risk it's defraying. You can 
you can show the your position against uh, potential uh, asserters to to show what, how how good your position is and whether you're under or over investing in different parts of your portfolio. Which without this kind of data is just impossible. So before Cipher, there were a small number of companies that had the kind of resources where they could deploy the people necessary to answer these questions manually. But the cost of that is just phenomenal, and for most companies, it's just out of reach. If you think of it, even spending a few minutes per pattern deciding whether it's relevant to a topic and using Boolean search to narrow it down, you're still talking person years of effort every year to stay on top of that data. In, in dozens of people, it's it's virtually unaffordable. And Nigel, thinking about all your experience in in intellectual property, how do you think things have improved with with having access to better pattern intelligence? I'm proud of what Cypher has achieved. It's it's like a new dawn. Uh, if you look at what patent data was used for when it was difficult to access, it was how to file another patent. And there are 44 million uh, active patents in the world today. And I'm sure uh, the 44 millionth and number one is a huge contribution to, to science. And that kind of operational business of filing for more will always be a core business for patent attorneys. But with $40 billion spent a year defending, defending and protecting you know, trillions of dollars of investment of R&D, there needs to be a whole new way of making decisions. And so when we talk about Cypher having you know, unleashed strategic patent intelligence on the world, however dramatic that sounds, it has empowered uh, this kind of community of IP leaders to go and communicate and to be trusted with the finance function or the chief technology office or the main board. And so it's all fine to say, oh, I wish that patents were, were understood. Wishing is going to get you absolutely nowhere. You have to give these leaders the information they need in the same way as you referred, Francesca, to, oh, in every other part of the business, you bring your evidence along and you explain the reasons why a certain decision should be taken. But, but if there are hundreds of millions of dollars being spent inside an organization, then, then we've enabled those organizations to, to communicate internally and externally about the assets they have and the role they have in creating value and mitigating risk. That's huge. That that is huge. Um, thinking about the future, Nigel, how can you see the future developing for the IP profession? This new way of behaving, this idea that the IP profession and patent owners use evidence to make their decisions, is here to stay. What perhaps was novel. Uh, because it didn't exist before in 2013. In 2021, it's mainstream. We talk about it being the early majority. So still, that's half of the people out there are now using uh, this information. So what the future will be is it will be the late majority and then ultimately the laggards. This will be common. It will be the only way that you can make strategic decisions with evidence. Now you say it out loud, it's like, isn't that obvious? But it's only obvious if you enable access. Steve, you talked about technology enabling things. What do you see the future for, for IP? 
Yeah, so it's that democratization of this data, taking it so it's not only kind of like 20 incredibly well-funded um, patent teams around the world that have access to this data, but giving it to, to everybody so that they, everyone can make um, strategic decisions with that, with that information and have some way of um, showing the value that they're delivering to the business and, and really what, what the patent portfolio contributes to the operation of the business. Because in many industries, it's incredibly critical, but very poorly understood outside of the outside of the legal department. Um, so for me, it's about that. It's about how can we give access to more and more people, and that that aspect of kind of changing the changing the way that people approach patent strategy has been very rewarding and a really interesting journey for me. Who can you know? It's eight years ago, I knew nothing at all about patents, so it's been kind of quite an interesting journey. Well, great. Thank you so much. Um, thank you for joining us, Nigel and Steve, today and to, for walking us through your experience to date and how that's that's focused around evidence-based decision in the intellectual property world. Before we wrap up our session today, I was hoping you could summarise for our listeners, what is your cipher vision from this episode and our discussions today? Thanks, Francesca. I think the simplest way to talk about the cipher vision from this episode is that everyone should unleash the strategic value of patents. Hugely important asset class. The, uh, there are plenty of people who want to listen, and therefore we're empowering them to communicate. Thank you, Nigel. Steve, what's your cipher vision from today? Yeah, so it's, it's really back to that point about giving people access to, to the information that need they need to make decisions, evidence-based decision making. It sounds it's it's just something which is so so critical to to correctly maintaining your strategy that um, it's kind of I'm sure in a few years' time it'll seem unimaginable that people used to do it just based on gut feel. Well, thank you for listening to the first episode of Cypher Vision today. Do get in touch if you'd like to continue the conversation and follow the discussion on social using the hashtag Cypher Vision. Please do tune in to our next episode as we discuss how leaders communicate storytelling with data.